I think every day we should be asking ourselves when we're when we're having to implement policies that are being handed down from above, are we implementing them in a way that is consistent with the true spirit of the policy to begin with? Is it actually moving and affecting kids in a positive way? Or are we just going through this as an exercise that we have to comply with? And if we're taking a compliance oriented approach, we, we really need to start to question and rethink how we can insert um, the spirit of that original policy back into our process to really help move the needle for kids. Welcome to Highest Aspirations, an education podcast that explores the world of English language learners and how we can make a greater impact. Each episode, we bring you voices from across the ELL community to discuss the issues that matter most. Highest Aspirations is brought to you by Elevation Education, your partner for ELL program management and instruction. Hey everybody, welcome back to Highest Aspirations. I'm your host, Steve Sophronis. How do school leaders impact EL reclassification rates? Why is it so important to consider the underlying spirit of policies that are passed down from above, rather than simply looking at compliance? How might school leaders create opportunities for staff to engage in meaningful conversations about EL student success? We discuss these questions and much more in our conversation with Professors Madeline Mavrogartato and Rachel S. White. I learned about their work through an article in Education Week entitled English Learners and Reclassification, Principles Play Pivotal Role, Study Finds, and that was an article published by Corey Mitchell. Madeline Mavrogordado is an associate professor of K-12 Educational Administration. She utilizes quantitative and qualitative methods to investigate how education policies shape outcomes for underserved student populations, particularly immigrants and English learners. In addition, she studies how to develop and support effective school leaders who are prepared to serve students from diverse backgrounds in today's climate of high-stakes accountability and evaluation. Her work is informed by her experience as a bilingual teacher in Texas and California. Her work has appeared in a range of publications, including Educational Evaluation Policy Analysis, Educational Administration Quarterly, and Educational Policy. She currently serves as an associate editor for the American Educational Research Journal. Dr. Rachel S. White is an assistant professor in the Educational Foundations and Leadership Department of Old Dominion University's Darden College of Education and Professional Studies. Rachel teaches graduate courses in education policy and politics, as well as advanced research design and analysis. Rachel's research agenda is framed by three areas of interest. One, issues of power and democratic accountability in local and state education policymaking processes. Two, relationships between institutional structures and education policymaking and implementation. And three, how school and district leaders come to understand and implement policies in ways that lead to the enactment of social justice for historically marginalized students. As such, Rachel examines the politics of education policymaking and implementation, with a focus on the ways in which decisions made by political and educational leaders at the school, district, and state level impact K-12 educational experiences of marginalized students. The experiences of both Madeline and Rachel led to a really rich conversation about an important topic. Let's get started. Professor Marvro Gortado and Professor White, thanks for joining us on Highest Aspirations. 
Good to be here. Thanks for having us. Thanks, Steve. We so appreciate the invitation and opportunity to talk with you about our work. Absolutely. As always on the podcast, it starts with an idea and me reaching out to someone. Uh, and then the actual recording of that doesn't happen for a while. But I'm glad that we're finally having this conversation about this important topic. So let me begin by asking you to tell us a little bit about what led to this research topic and why you think it's so important. Maddie, do you want to start with that? Sure. Um, so we have had an interest for a long time in this issue of um, how English learners are being reclassified. And that is to say how English learners are being determined to be English proficient and exited from EL status. Um, and we've done quite a bit of work on this topic. And one of the things that has emerged over some of the prior work that we have done um, is the prominent role that school leaders are playing in these conversations and in um, figuring out how policies are being implemented on the ground. Um, so how reclassification policies are actually playing out in school buildings. Um, based on some other work we had done, we saw that school leaders really had a, a strong voice in that process. And one of the things that we thought was really interesting was that we didn't think that they really recognized how powerful their voice was in the process. And so we really wanted to sort of speak to this issue specifically of how school leaders are engaging in reclassification decisions and um, also how they are enacting or obstructing social justice as they are making those decisions in their schools. Yeah, I love how you brought up the social justice piece, one that, you know, you find in, in your research, and we'll get to, into that a little bit later. And I totally agree with you, like in our, in our process, you know, with, with schools sort of using um, our products and interacting with, with folks in school districts, oftentimes the principals really don't understand the, the power that they have, and, and in many cases, um, maybe a little bit sort of um, behind on understanding how um, reclassification works and the power they have to kind of, to kind of affect those, um, those rates and those decisions. So that's a good primer. Uh, Rachel, I'm going to go to you and just talk a little bit about um, the case studies that you did. So you did, you did um, case studies in eight elementary schools in four districts in Texas, if, if, if I'm on the right track. My question is, why did you approach the research this way and what was the main goal of this work when you started? Sure. So we conducted the case studies in eight different elementary schools across four different districts, um, primarily based on the findings of previous research that Maddie just mentioned that showed that um, English learners were reclassified at different rates across the state. And so we selected schools based on that. We wanted a wide variety of schools located in different regions of the state um, and some regions that were reclassifying English learners very quickly and others that were reclassifying them relatively slowly. And so that's sort of um, how we selected our, our cases. Um, and we, we chose that method, the case study method, um, because it really allowed us to spend a substantial amount of time collecting the data, everything from sitting in on the, the reclassification meetings um, and just being sort of a fly on the wall um, and seeing That's how great. that went. And then um, interviewing um, the, the teams of educators that were making the reclassification decisions, including the school leaders. Um, and all of this reclassification process happens in a really small window. It's, it's about a two-week window. Yeah. And so the case studies really let us spend uh, maximize our amount of time in 
the number of schools that we were in. Um, so, you know, the main, the main goal there was really to just be sitting in um, and spending a lot of time to understand the role that these school leaders um, played in the reclassification process. And of course, how their, their decisions or their actions or potentially inactions um, enacted or obstructed social justice. Yeah, I'm curious. Just a quick follow up to that. Um, you know, you, you mentioned that uh, you know all the schools are very different in terms of reclassification rates. The period that they do this uh, is really the window is really short, in two weeks or so. Is there anything else that that like immediately comes to your mind that sort of surprised you while you were, as you said, kind of a fly on the wall in those meetings and and observing that? Um, I would say just the uh, the wide variation in terms of how every different every school approached this process very differently. Um, some of them are very innovative and that was really exciting to see. Um, it was interesting, even on the very technical nature of like how the meeting should happen or who should be in the meeting, how much variation there was in terms of um, how that was interpreted and actually implemented on the ground. Um, so I think those are some of the big things that stuck out to me. I don't know, Maddie, if there was anything else for you. Yeah, I mean, I would just echo that. There's tremendous variation, and what's fascinating is that Texas is actually a state that um, has a fairly standardized set of reclassification criteria and requirements yep. um, that are state set, and many states in the U.S. have not historically had that, but are moving toward that under ESSA because of new standardization requirements, and mm -hmm. so we were pretty floored to see such a wide variation in practices in a state that supposedly has relatively standardized criteria and processes in place. So it really just sort of emphasizes this idea that policies may be similar, but the way that policies are implemented on the ground varies tremendously. And there is so much room for leaders to determine how these processes play out in their buildings. Yeah, it's a great it's a great point. I think I think the observations that you both just made reflect the observations that we have made as an organization when we when we work with many school districts um, in Texas and try to uh, sort of sort of set up their systems in our software to uh, to to for for their for their you know monitoring and reclassification mm -hmm. um, needs. So it's it, I guess in some ways it's kind of good to hear that you're that you're observing the same thing, but it's also uh, interesting to know that even in a state that's that has a you know sort of one policy in place that there's so much variation. So Maddie, I want to ask you a, a question. You were quoted in the ed, I found I found out about the work that you're doing through an article um, in Education Week, and um, one of the quotes that I thought was interesting that came from you was from an educator's perspective, we like to think of schools as being a place where they are being run the right way, that they are absolutely places where social justice happens. So the question I have about that is, have you observed this as being the case um, in, in schools as you conducted your research? Um, I would say yes and no. Um, so I think one of the things that um, our research really highlights is that um, a lot of school leaders often um, sort of brand themselves or think of themselves as being social justice warriors. Um, I've heard that term um, used and, you know, as how people identify um, and describe themselves, but they miss these really interesting opportunities and important opportunities to enact social justice through their day-to-day -day practice when they're interacting with um, groups of students who have been um, historically marginalized, such as English learners. Um, so I think oftentimes when people think of social justice, they think of sort of a need to bring in something new um, into the school or implement a new program or start a new initiative that's really social 
social justice focused, when in fact the way that they choose to go about doing their day-to-day -day business and implementing policies that they have to implement day-to-day -day, um, can be oriented in a social justice way or it can obstruct social justice. And so um, I think that, that was, that's one of the, the things that I was really trying to, to signal when I was um, talking with Corey Mitchell at, at Education Week was, you know, we, we, it's uneven. Um, how we see social justice happening in schools, but policy implementation is certainly a place where it can happen, but, but does not always happen. I'm curious about those, following up a little bit on the, about those missed opportunities that you mentioned on a day-to-day -day basis. Could, do you have like a concrete example of, of, of something like that, obviously without sort of, you know, revealing any names or districts? Sure. Well, we can just talk through an example out of this specific um, article, this specific piece of research that we did. Um, so, uh, for example, um, in a, a couple of the schools that we were in, the school leaders um, set up uh, these reclassification uh, meetings at the end of the year where there was time set aside for discussion on each individual student's progress mm -hmm. um, and uh, there was a very specific intent around um, talking through how each student had done where students needed additional assistance and really trying to think proactively about how to um, improve educational opportunity for each individual student the following school year, right? So even though these were end of, end of year meetings and these specific English learners had perhaps not met the state set reclassification criteria in terms of their assessment scores, there was still a discussion about each child and what would help move them forward the following year. Um, in other um, reclassification uh, meetings that we were in, um, committees, in essence, uh, took the time to simply fill out forms in what they described as an assembly line fashion, where they were recording yeah. students' individual scores um, on papers that would go into students' permanent records, um, but they were not having substantive, meaningful discussions about what was going to move the needle for, for that child. Um, in, you know, the following school year. And so it's just a really good example of a missed opportunity. They, both of these groups of, of, of educators spent equal time, right? One group chose to spend their time filling out forms and getting signatures on forms, so very much a compliance orientation, whereas mm -hmm. the other group chose to spend their time in a way that was substantive, meaningful discussion about each student and how to improve that student's access to educational opportunity um, and improve their outcomes the following year. Um, and so, you know, there wasn't, there wasn't a difference in time spent, right? It was just how they chose to spend their time. Um, and, you know, I think that's a really powerful example of, um, you know, we have these opportunities, but sometimes we don't always think about, um, you know, how, how to spend our time in the most effective way um, when we're implementing these types of policies that are handed down from above. Definitely. And I'll just say two, two things to fall up there. One, uh, I'm glad you mentioned that the timing, you know, was the same for both. So it wasn't a time issue. Um, and two, related to that, you know, you can definitely see really easily how this is a leadership, school leadership issue. I mean, if these, if these meetings are set up by leadership to be, a, to be sort of set up in a certain way, then, you know, I assume everyone else is going to follow and, and change management is difficult in education. So when you have kind of a compliance based meeting in place and people are used to that, 
um, that could be difficult to, uh, to to change. And that's obviously a, a school leadership issue. Mm-hmm. That's a great point. And, um, you know, I think the, the positionality that leaders are in um, is really important here. Um, you know, they determine how much time is set aside for these meetings to take place. They determine the physical space of what those meetings look like. Are people around a table um, where they can look at each other to have a meaningful conversation? Um, could data be shown on a screen where everybody could engage with an individual student's data simultaneously to discuss it? Um, is there somebody who's helping take notes, perhaps you know, an administrative assistant who's taking notes on the process so that we can pass this information on to next year's teacher? Um, those decisions rest in the hands of the school leader, absolutely. Yeah, that's great. Yeah, I mean, even those logistical things, you know, having access to, to screens to be able to see the data, being able to have people take notes. So really, really uh, important information. I'm glad you're sharing. Maddie, I want to follow up again with something that I think is is related in some ways, you know, to the idea of kind of the power of um, principals and school leaders. Um, your research concluded that school leaders with only a superficial understanding of policy are less equipped and less likely to reach that standard because they are uh, as you put it, more concerned with compliance procedures and are unaware of areas of flexibility that afford opportunities to implement the policy so as to promote equity in education. Um, you just kind of got into that a little bit, um, but I'm curious what we can do to sort of mitigate these issues um, in schools where perhaps it's more compliance driven rather than these conversations. So I guess I'm sort of following up on the last question we asked and saying, if you're in a situation where um, you know, it's not working the right way. What, what, what can we do to kind of make these changes? Um, well, I think one of the biggest things is just to really help school leaders and educators in general um, really try to promote a mindset of always asking themselves, what is the underlying purpose of what we're doing? Why are we being asked to um, consider whether a child is ready to be reclassified and why are we being asked to look at data to to drive this decision-making process, for example. Um, Because I think if uh, people are oriented toward asking why a policy is in place, um, you know, what prompted that policy to come about to begin with, you're really getting at issues of the spirit of the law. So, you know, these policies are in place because we're trying to expand educational access and equity for a group of students who has been traditionally marginalized and underserved in our schools. Mm -hmm. And so if you ask yourself this question as a school leader, um, you know, if, if what you come up with is in essence, well, we're trying to move the needle for kids, uh, you know, to improve their educational outcomes, then you should look at your process and see if your process aligns with that underlying purpose of the policy. Um, I would argue that if you, you know, ask the school leaders who spent their time, you know, filling out forms and getting signatures, if this aligns with why the policy is in place, they would probably say no, um, you know, because it's not, it's not actually doing anything for the kids, right? It's just time wasted in terms of filling out forms that a simple mail merge process could have done. Um, and, and I think that those are the kinds of things, though, where people are just, they miss these opportunities because they just don't think about it. And so I think every day we should be asking ourselves when we're, when we're having to implement policies that are being handed down from above, are we implementing them in a way that is consistent with the true spirit of the policy to begin with. 
is it actually moving and affecting kids in a positive way or are we just going through this as an exercise that we have to comply with and if we're taking a compliance oriented approach we we really need to start to question and rethink how we can insert um, the spirit of that original policy back into our process to really help move the needle for kids yeah absolutely and i would imagine and correct me if i'm wrong but as as other districts and, and school leaders sort of see what perhaps districts are doing that have a more um, holistic approach to this and are really looking at, as you say, the spirit of, of the policy, um, that might hopefully sway them to kind of move to those positions if they're not thinking about that now. Do you see any sort of uh, collaboration um, between districts or di one district learning from another um, in this way, or is that not happening? Yet? You know, I think it's interesting. I think, um, I think it's happening rarely. Um, so one of our um, school leaders actually was quoted in, in our article as saying something along the lines of, you know, I'm really curious how other people are thinking through this reclassification process. I wonder if there are better ways to be doing this than we are. Um, but what that signaled was, I'm not having these conversations with other people, right? Um, I'm, I'm going about doing this the way that we as a district or as a school have always done this. Um, but I think that, you know, there is a little bit more of a sense of like, maybe we could be doing this differently. Um, and that's really what this work tries to, tries to uncover, right, is to sort of say, yeah, let's think carefully about how something um, that many people would say is as simple as making, you know, reclassification decisions. Let's really think about, you know, the different ways that this could be done and which might be more positive and which might actually have a detrimental um, effect on students in terms of their longer term outcomes. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I was curious about that. And then, you know, my interpretation of this, this research that you've done and sort of the, the, the idea and re reclassification in general um, is that uh, this jury's still out in terms of, um, you know, the conclusions of, um, of, of what a principal's role is in here. But what, what does your research, research signal, um, does it signal a trend in terms of principal's role or is it sort of still up in the air a little bit? So I would say it, it signal is a is a strong word, but I would say it hints at a trend that we could we could study. Um, this is where this is where you could tell that I was a teacher and you're a researcher yeah. because you're using the right term. So 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 here's an example, right? Um, another example that comes directly out of our work. Um, so in the year uh, that we conducted this study, there had been a policy change that took place in Texas where um, linguistic accommodations that are provided to English learners um, or that educators have the option of providing to English learners, um, such as the use of a bilingual dictionary, extra time on a test, those kinds of things. The policy changed so that any English learner who was receiving those types of, of linguistic accommodations could not actually be considered for reclassification. So if they scored at a certain level, you know, at the cut point of the um, state reading test, um, if they had had those linguistic accommodations, they were, they were not considered because the idea from the state was that if they were receiving these accommodations, they would not be ready to be reclassified. Now the issue mm -hmm. with, this is th with this is that um, a number of schools um, had been providing every English learner in the building with those accommodations for many years because the right. thought was we want to provide kids with as many supports as we can, but they didn't realize the ramifications of that because they weren't aware of the policy change. Oh, so we were in, 
um, one school, for example, where um, they kept looking at individual kids and they kept saying, well, this child, you know, did really well on the tests and, and has scored well and has met all the state set reclassification criteria. But, oh, look, you know, this kid had reclassification, had um, linguistic uh, accommodations. And so we're not able to reclassify this kid. And it was one of those moments where as a researcher, we wanted to jump out of our seats, right? And, yeah, and yeah. sort of say, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. So you're talking about a kid who's getting commended performance on assessments and you've given them these linguistic accommodations, which we don't actually know that they used or not during the test, right? Great point. Um, and you're in essence taking them off of the list to be reclassified. And um, we were in another building where the same thing had happened, right? In essence, every child had these linguistic accommodations, but the difference was the school leader, where the school leader very concretely said, this was an error on our part, and it is not consistent with the underlying purpose of this policy uh, for us to just bar all of these children from being considered for reclassification. So here's what we're going to do. We're going to grab the classroom teachers of each of these individual kids who met the state set criteria um, on the assessment scores. We're going to bring them into the meeting and we're going to ask them. So we see that you provided this child with a bilingual dictionary and extra time. Did this child use those accommodations <laughs> during the test? And, um, and the teachers uh, would sometimes say, you know, no, they didn't. That dictionary sat under their desk the entire time and I have mm -hmm. Reported on my sheet the time that they turned in the test, so no, they did not use the extra time. And so the principal um, in the in the meeting said, "Well, okay, we're going to reclassify this child, and we're going to document this very clearly, so that if the state has questions, we have the documentation to back it up." So you know, right there is a really concrete example, right, of one leader that says, "I know what the underlying purpose and spirit of this policy is." And I'm going to take action to make sure that what we are doing on behalf of our kids is consistent with the spirit of the policy as opposed to complying with these specific components of the policy, if that makes sense. Yeah, it absolutely makes sense. And I imagine that there's, a, that there's a whole sort of spectrum of where school leaders stand on this, that it's not just kind of black and white where one is strictly compliance and the other is going to go to great lengths to make sure that they get the information they need, like in the example that you just gave. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Okay. Um, so Rachel, I want to shift over to you for a sec. We were just kind of, we've just been addressing that one of the main takeaways of the study seems to be the teachers, I'm sorry, the principals need to think deeply about policy and implement in a way that increases equity. Um, and, you know, we, we talked about sort of the spirit of the policy. This, this really resonates for me, um, as I often hear from experts in the field and teachers and everyone that, that good instruction for ELs is good for all students. Um, curious to hear your thoughts on that. I know that you're focused on ELs and reclassification, but how can this um, sort of affect all students? Absolutely. Um, so while we focus on ELs, um, uh, the framework that we sort of put forth around uh, a deep understanding of, of both the spirit and the letter of the law, as well as having this sort of um, social justice orientation during, um, prior to, during, and after policy implementation can be applied to I think any other educational policy that we're, we're working with in schools, um, being more informed um, about both what is in law and what do we need to, to complete um, to be in compliance with that, but the spirit of the law, really um, taking time to go back um, and understand the origins of the law um, and to understand um, what the purpose of the law is, um, that's, that's beneficial for, for any law. Um, mm -hmm. And then deeply understanding the, the experiences of the students 
um, and their learning context um, is critical for any policy implementation effort. And so um, I was thinking as Maddie was talking about the one district um, that took time, um, or the one school that took the time to go through each and every student um, and compared that to the one that just um, had the assembly line. Um, one other thing that stuck out to me in, in those two cases was um, the one school district or school, um, their, their leader actually um, took the time to invite um, every, every grade level teacher into the meeting. And so the way um, the policy actually looks on paper says that you have to have a teacher representative um, in these conversations. And in, in the one school, um, the the principal um, invited um, each teacher from each grade level into those conversations around reclassification during their planning period. And so every single student not only um, was, was discussed, but it was discussed by someone who has been with that student every single day of the school year and deeply understood what they've been experiencing both at home and at school um, compared to the, the other school that um, simply had a, a teacher representative as it was written in law. They had one teacher um, who you know, served as that representative. So even just thinking that way um, around the ways that principals can really think deeply about um, ways to implement policy that are gonna make sure that um, students receive equitable educational experiences. Um, it, it can be applied, I think, across the board if we're thinking about any policy. Yeah, great point. And I have sort of two takeaways there. One is that, uh, just to kind of reinforce what you just said, I mean, having the teacher's voice, the person who's spending so much time with these students and knows these students um, and how they learn uh, deeply uh, is crucial for the student. I would also contend, and I'm, I'm curious to hear what you think about this, that when you bring teachers in who are not sort of EL specialists by trade, but are working with English learners, maybe they're sort of new to that. They're not working with a lot of them, but they, they're sort of coming in. Maybe there's demographic changes. Um, that, I would imagine, also kind of helps uh, these content teachers look at these students um, as assets and perhaps understand them more as they're involved in these meetings. Um, any comment on that? I'm curious about that. Yeah, I think absolutely. Um, you know, the, the policy itself does stipulate that you have to have an EL specialist and a, and a, a teacher, I believe. Maddie, you can correct me if I'm wrong. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, by, I think the more, more voices that are in there, especially, um, you know, more voices that, that are able to speak to the experiences of the students, um, and it is helpful. Um, and especially, as you mentioned, Steve, uh, the maybe teachers that are newer um, to serving this group of students, um, they're able to to, you know, sit with, with other teachers that maybe have more experience and really understand um, how this process works yeah. um, and see from these other teachers um, that, this, that these students are a great asset um, to the school and to the district um, and that it's really important to, to consider each and every one of them and, and their academic and social and emotional growth. Great. Yeah, I just that uh, was something that I was thinking of because I often think about the the teacher. You know, I, this is probably not so much the case in in districts in Texas, but certainly in the Northeast, where we're seeing big demographic shifts and and we're seeing teachers that are working with with these students and are perhaps new to that. And I just think bringing them into these meetings, working with school leaders and others, 
um, just gives them a little bit more stake in the game. So, Steve, may I just add one thing to that? Please do. Um, I, I just wanted to also mention, I think, you know, given that you you raised this this point about, you know, districts that are newer to, to the English learner population or have growing English learner populations, I think this is also where the school leader really comes into play. Yeah. Um, sometimes um, our y y teachers have the absolute best intentions of providing um, layers of services to kids, but if the services don't align with the students' needs, then we're actually potentially hurting them um, instead of helping them. And so, um, you know, one of the schools that we were in, um, there were uh, teacher perspectives that came into play in making reclassification decisions where teachers were recommending against reclassifying um, students who had met all of the objective assessment criteria and they were citing reasons such as this child is really shy and um, you know has um, difficulty connecting with other kids in the classroom so I really think we should um, not reclassify this child this year or um, this child struggles with discipline issues. Hmm. I don't think this child is ready for reclassification. Or uh, one of my favorite examples, this child is not yet effectively demonstrating the five effective behaviors of a leader. <laughs> this oh, was like a second, a second grader we're talking about, right? I mean, it, and, and so these kinds of, of statements where I think what's at the heart of those um, is that teachers want so desperately to help the kids and they are saying if we can keep them classified as an English learner, they'll continue to get another round of services next right, year right. and that that will benefit them. I don't think it's a malicious recommendation, but it's up to the leader to come in and say that's, that's really you know, helpful contextual information that we can pass along, but that's not a reason to not reclassify a child. Right, um, and the leader needs to to be able to know that and to really make that statement, especially in a place where teachers may be less familiar um, with working with English learners and how these processes work. Um, so I just you know put that additional plug in you know for the really important role that school leaders play um, around monitoring and implementing these processes and shaping how um, teacher decisions and input come in. Um, and helping teachers learn as they go. Yeah, that's a really great point. I'm glad you brought it up. I mean, there's teachers that, you, like you said, most of the time, the vast majority of the time, I would contend it's certainly not malicious in any way, but the, the lack of understanding then mm -hmm. falls on leadership. Um, so that's that's a really great point. So uh, we've talked about uh, policy implementation. We've talked about social justice. We've combined them a little bit, but I'm curious, um, based on all the work that you've done, how would you recommend school leaders leverage policy implementation or maybe the spirit of policy implementation to enact social justice in their schools? And you mentioned the idea of the meetings and really getting to the spirit of it and asking why. Is there anything else that you'd add to there? Um, I think one of the other things that, that we would add is just for, for leaders to really um, always approach policy understanding that policy is typically a floor. It's not a ceiling in terms of what we do for our kids. Um, so um, oftentimes policy sets forth minimum requirements um, and we have a lot of room to actually think creatively about what we might layer on into the process or integrate into the process. Um, Rachel gave the example a second ago of um, the policy does not say that every child's classroom teacher must be present in the room when making reclassification decisions about each individual child, but that was a decision that the school had made because they wanted 
each classroom teacher to be able to speak to the specific students and the progress they had made and the supports that would benefit them the subsequent year. So they chose to go above and beyond what policy required. Mm. And I think so often because um, leaders and schools at this present juncture are being bombarded with many policies that they have to comply with, the attention tends to be on, um, you know, what does the letter of the law say? How do I comply with this so that if I am audited or if somebody comes into my building, um, I have dotted my I's and crossed my T's as opposed to, you know, how can we really be using and leveraging this policy to do the work that we say we're doing day in and day out, right? Which is, again, I come back to the social justice warriors piece, right? Um, how are we actually implementing social justice so that it plays out for our kids on a day-to-day -day basis? And how are we using policy in service of that as opposed to perhaps working against it? Um, so consider policy as a floor, not as a ceiling. So that begs the question, should, should policy still be the floor or should we raise the policy to try to meet the needs of the, um, the social justice? I mean, some districts obviously are using it, the policy like the district that you mentioned it and going kind of above and beyond. Um, do you think that we need to make changes to policy to, to enact that social justice that we're looking for? Or do you think it should stay the way it is and schools should kind of learn to learn from others perhaps about how they can leverage the sort of minimum to do more? I mean, I think that's a great question um, and probably one that we could get into a, like a philosophical um, <laughs> debate on. Um, yeah. But I, you know, I think one of the things that is, is, you know, present in my mind is that, you know, obviously contexts and, and districts and schools are very different. And um, I do think that we have to watch how prescriptive we are in policy because we need to empower educators to be the professionals that they are and to, um, you know, leverage their knowledge and use that in their decision-making processes around what works and will not work in their own context. Um, you can imagine that a school, for example, that has had a high English learner population for 20 years um, is going to look perhaps very different in terms of the processes and how they approach something than a school that all of a sudden got an influx of refugee students and is grappling with reclassifying English learners for the first time. Um, and so I think, you know, it's really important that we do have some minimum requirements mm -hmm. and maybe we might consider um, adjusting those a little bit. But I also think educators should be empowered to think about this themselves. And as long as they're thinking about what is the underlying spirit of the policy, then they'll be able to implement the policy in a way that fits their context that is consistent with notions of social justice leadership. Right. Yeah. It's a difficult question, perhaps an unfair one and one that is a philosophical one, but I was just curious to hear your, your point of view and I appreciate you giving it. And I, you know, it's, it's worth mentioning also that you mentioned ESSA earlier. I mean, I think there's a lot of implications there as well um, in terms of the autonomy for, you know, school leaders that they, that they, that they have another conversation for another time as well. Um, but, uh, but I think we're in a definitely a changing landscape at this point. Absolutely. <laughs> I completely agree, both in terms of, um, you know, demographic shifting, but um, increases in accountability for the English learner population um, and, you know, simultaneously um, increased transparency around how these groups are performing in terms of what um, states have to report out on long-term English learners and disaggregate the EL subgroup. All right. So, what, what's one recommendation that you would give to a principal in a school with increasing number of, of ELs? Um, I think uh, hands down, um, be knowledgeable 
about the policies that are in place to um, guide the education of this specific group of students. And so there are many ways of building that knowledge base. Um, one, Steve, you mentioned a second ago, you know, talk with, with fellow educators who have been serving these populations um, for a long time and learn from your peers. And then the other is just to proactively seek out um, professional development um, and uh, do some reading um, on on how to think about best educating English learners. We have a lot of best practices, and so I think part of it is just becoming more knowledgeable about those best practices. Um, and I think uh, if leaders start with that tone, then that tone filters down um, across the uh, whole organization, the whole school. Um, and if teachers see leaders investing in building that knowledge base, I think they will also invest in building that knowledge base because of the tone that the leader has set. Yeah, I totally agree. And for what it's worth, I mean, there's a lot of information out there more and more as time goes on, both in sort of bite-sized chunks that you can kind of look at for five minutes and learn something quickly or sort of more detailed research like what you're doing. And so I think that there's a lot of different ways that school leaders and teachers um, can learn um, about this space. And that, that actually leads me to my next question. And Rachel, I'm going to get your, your take on this. So um, obviously, this is a really important topic. But as someone who um, was a teacher for a long time, and now I'm involved with this work, I spent some time at Harvard doing some research. I, I'm always interested in kind of um, sort of the, 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 the gap and bridging the gap between research um, and practice. So what do you think researchers and, pra and practitioners can do better to learn from one another. I mean, we're talking about an issue now. You're doing lots of research. There's people on the ground listening to this that are trying to apply it. Um, curious how you think we can learn from one another, how we can collaborate better, particularly as it relates to, to English learners. Absolutely. And I would actually um, extend sort of that gap to, to sort of a three-way gap, right, between researchers and practice practitioners and policymakers. I think all of those yep. um, need to be trying to bridge bridge a gap together. Um, and it's it's a it's a three-way street if that's maybe it's a it's a roundabout or something. <laughs> <laughs> um, Dangerous. And, yes. Um, but I think it, on the researcher side of things, um, for, for us it's it's really about going that extra step uh, to make the work accessible to a wider audience, um, not just you know making the academic article that is available in to, to you know, um, the, a small audience, but reworking that article and making it digestible to other audiences. Um, and also doing things like we're doing right now, right? Using a variety of mediums to share the work. Um, that's really critical because not everyone learns or digests information in the same way. Um, other things, you know, having pra practitioners not only involved in the, the data collection process during research, but also um, really engaging in, in true research practice partnerships um, where the practitioners are involved from everything from developing the questions or, or identifying problems of practice to creating the research design and, of course, the data collection process and then especially in the writing up of the results. Um, so I think those are a couple of ways to, to uh, bridge that research um, practice gap. And then um, I think it's important to, to we, we don't talk about this as much, but I think it's important to involve the policymakers in this. I think one of the things about our you know, nation as a whole is that policymakers are constantly turning over. Um, and so even as a practitioner or a researcher, if you want to um, go to maybe a state policymaker 
that created the policy so you can maybe understand sort of what was the initial reason and, and goals and motivation for the policy. He, he or she may not be there anymore. Mm. Um, and so I think it's important to have um, constant communication also with the policymaking world um, and, and develop a better um, relationship with, with them so we can make sure that we're understanding um, their initial intentions and motivations and goals and keeping that um, par- as part of the conversation as well. Yeah, I'm glad I'm glad you brought up policymakers um, also. And I think, you know, for, for what it's worth, I mean, the fact that there was an article uh, in Education Week that, that Corey Mitchell um, put out uh, about the work that you're doing does make it accessible to teachers and lead, school leaders, perhaps more importantly, who are busy and perhaps don't have time to read um, a longer uh, academic um, research paper. So I think that that's happening. Um, certainly, uh, you know, there there are lots of folks that are trying to put material out there that is um, digestible for folks, myself included. And you know, it's, it's it tends to be kind of like um, sort of a bunch of small audiences. I'd love to see a world in which those audiences kind of combine and learn from one another. But we're 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 making it happen. I think it's slowly but surely that that gap is uh, is is closing some. So as we close, a question that I like to ask everyone uh, that comes on the podcast is um, if there is a book or other resource that has influenced you um, either personally or professionally that we can add to our kind of growing library of, um, of resources. Um, Rachel, I'll start with you there and then, and then Maddie, I'll give you an opportunity to uh, provide one as well. <laughs> um, great question. I'm going to look up this library now. Um, I would say... A, um, probably a nerdy book that has really influenced me is um, Deborah Stone's Policy Paradox, uh, The Art of Political Decision Making. Mm-hmm. Um, it's, it, I, I draw on her stuff a lot around, um, you know, different ways that we, thinking about how policy is made, how political decisions are made um, at the, at, even at the most local level within, within a school, within a district, um, all the way up to a, a national level. Um, probably one of recent that's maybe less nerdy, um, <laughs> is, um, the devil's highway. Um, um, that one, um, has just really, um, motivated me to continue along the lines of, of this work. Um, and so, yeah, this would be my two. Great. And nerdy is okay as we go to Maddie. So do you have one that you'd like to share? <laughs> um, sure. Um, I guess first and foremost, and this might be one, um, just for for school leaders to take a look at if they're sort of thinking about, um, you know, revisiting the way that they're thinking about their EL kiddos or want to do a little bit of a reboot or a refresh. It's one that many people have read, but perhaps not in a while. Um, The House on Mango Street, Sandra Cisneros. Um, I just think it's a really helpful book to written from a child's perspective um, on experiencing this country um, as an immigrant, um, as a Latina. Um, And I think that's sort of helpful sometimes to to put ourselves back in the kids' shoes as we're rethinking how we're doing our work. So that's one. Um, From uh, more of a research perspective, um, I really uh, have appreciated and constantly refer to um, Carola Suarez Orozco, Marcelo Suarez Orozco, and Irina Todorova, um, their book, Learning in a New Land, um, Immigrant Students in American Society. Um, They did a... um, a very interesting qualitative study um, where they followed um, immigrant students and their different educational outcomes. And I think, again, it provides us with really important perspectives from students themselves, um, which can be really helpful as educators to think about how we are doing our work. That's great. So four books, some nerdy, some policy, some not. And uh, I'm happy to say that they're all 
uh, new. None of them have been mentioned. So that's great. So four more to add to the library. So one last question that is an important one. Um, how can people learn more about this important work that you all are engaged in? Um, I think perhaps um, one of the best ways is to um, follow us on Twitter. Um, both of us are on Twitter and whenever we have um, new work uh, that comes out, we always um, tweet out about it. Rachel is particularly good at that. Um, I follow Rachel's cues um, when it comes to, to social media. Um, so I think that's a great way. Um, and, um, you know, we are also happy to engage in conversations with people. Um, if folks would like to reach out to either of us over email or through social media, um, I always love to connect with practitioners and engage with them about the work that they um, are doing and also think about um, partnerships in terms of research moving forward. Perfect. So what are your tw Twitter handles really quickly? Um, Maddie, what's yours? I'm at Maddie Mavro, M-A-D-D-Y-M-A-V-R-O. Great. How about you, Rachel? I'm at I'm, I'm Rachel, R-A-C-H-E-L, White, W-H-I-T-E. I love that handle. That's great. It's like introducing yourself. <laughs> <laughs> okay, perfect. Well, I always like to give the handles in case folks want to look right now, but we'll also post everything that you mentioned, the books, the resources, and everything um, on the written version of this podcast episode, which you can find at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community. And with that, um, it has been a pleasure speaking with both of you. I want to really thank you for the work that you're doing, which I think is extremely important. We could talk about this for hours, but we had a limited time. So hopefully we got at some of the, um, the main points here. Um, and again, just thank you so much for taking the time. Thanks, Steve. Thank you, Steve. We really appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for listening to Highest Aspirations. If you liked our show, please be sure to join the ELL community at elevationeducation.com slash ELL community, where you'll find all the episodes of Highest Aspirations and other resources to help educators maximize the impact on their English language learners. Also, let us know how we're doing by writing a review on iTunes or wherever you listen to your podcasts.